0: this is raw cut
1: as a ghana and Narunga woman i'd like to acknowledge that today the studios lands are upon the paramount and ghana nation i'd like to acknowledge the elders past present and future and emerging and thank them um, for allowing us to be on these lands
2: Welcome to Life Bursts. I'm Sarah.
3: And I'm Matt. Uh, great that you could join us today as we bring local stories to you. And today in the studio, we have Jade. Welcome, Jade.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And
2: thank you, Jade, for that lovely country.
1: Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, it's really important to me that um, when we join together as people meeting, um, that we acknowledge the lands that we are on. hmm And how
2: important is that for you within your own life and those
1: around you yeah I think it just really for me brings it into the conversation that um yeah and especially just to acknowledge and pay respect to the custodians of the land the people that look after the land that have been here for thousands of generations before us mm. yeah
3: yeah well take us back Jay where did life start out for you
1: Uh, For me, it started in Aberfield Park in the southern suburbs. Um, I lived in a house with my mum and dad and then around age four, we had a new baby in the house, my sister Dior. So uh, we lived there for quite some time until around the age of seven where unfortunately some of the things um, happened in the home, which meant that we couldn't uh, live where we were anymore. And uh, we moved in with um, a family friend, um, but unfortunately then there was a family breakdown. So uh, from the age of seven, I'm very blessed to have had um, a stepfather, Glen, and uh, lived mainly with my mum and Glenn and my sister Dior. And then later on, um, also lived with my stepsister, Tanil. So that's basically how the journey began. Um, I went to the local primary school and the local high school, and then was around that suburb uh, until I was about 20 years old, 1920. But during high school, unfortunately I started hanging around with people that influenced me in a negative way. And uh, definitely, had uh, an exciting uh, a youth, exciting youth time and uh, went to a lot of parties and did a lot of things that would damage my body, lots of um, alcohol and drugs. And that definitely turned into something of a lifestyle and, and an addiction for me. So did you know that what you were doing at
2: the time wasn't OK for your body?
1: Uh, to be honest, it, it wasn't even a conscious thought. It was just part of the lifestyle that I was living. Um, I never, on reflection now, I never looked, uh, at the time I never looked and went, oh, this is bad for me, I should stop. But because of the people that I was hanging around and the, yeah, the type of lifestyle it was, it wasn't until things got really bad that I even kind of acknowledged that I had an addiction as well. And at what point did it get really bad and what did that look like? So I was hanging around some people that um, basically uh, needed to steal money or make money in alternative ways to support their drug habits and uh, my life was definitely going down that path. And then one night my wonderful mum um she had a phone call from my friend at the time, whose house that I was staying at on at that night, although I'd really been couch surfing for a while. And then, yeah, my friend rang my mum and said, Jade's in trouble. She needs your help. And uh, mum, of course, came to the rescue. That night she came over. I remember it so clearly. I don't remember much about that time, but I definitely remember this night. Mum came... To the house that I was staying at at four o'clock in the morning, and said, "Your dad's been in an accident. You need to come home." So I went with her, not really understanding what had happened. And she sat me down, and said, "Jade, I know what's going on in your life. I know that you're in trouble. I know that uh, you, you need some support and some help." And I just said, "I need to get out of Adelaide. I I can't continue to." stay here I can't continue to be with these people and so she picked me up at four o'clock in the morning and 12 o'clock that day I was on a plane to Melbourne Hmm. into country Victoria (laughs) right
2: that just moving that didn't kick the habit and help you get out of that part of your life did
1: it well fortunately yes um We were, in, I was staying in country Victoria with a beautiful family friend. There wasn't much around at all. Um, I didn't have access to a vehicle. The nearest shops were 10Ks away. Um, and so during the first couple of weeks well, maybe three or four weeks that I was there, I really just detoxed um, in a room by myself with my family friend. And uh, it was, Traumatic.
3: <laughs>
1: mm. um, yeah, I didn't have at that time. I didn't access a doctor or anything like that. But um, it was definitely, although a very hard experience and nothing that I'd ever want to go through again. I'm I'm so grateful for my mum and my family friend that you um, just basically reached out to me and picked me up and put me into a different situation where I could have a much healthier and. Yeah, lifestyle. What does detoxing look like for you? For me, it uh, meant that my mental health was really on a decline. I had um, a lot of intrusive thoughts and um, physically I was uh, vomiting and had nausea and headaches and... Um, my skin was itchy and I had tummy upsets and all of that type of thing for going on nearly, um, three or four weeks. Yeah.
3: Wow. What would you say to, uh, to young people or others who are finding themselves in that Mm. cycle where they're starting to realise that, uh, that the things are harming them and they're harming others or for, for parents and others, caregivers who have got someone in that situation, would you give them any advice out of your story?
1: Yeah, definitely. For young people, um, I just want to remind them that there is always someone that cares about them. There's always somebody that loves them, that is thinking about them, that wishes that they were in a different circumstance. And it's about, for me, it was humbling myself and saying, yes, mum, you are correct and I need help. So don't ever think that There is nobody that loves you and cares for you and that will support you because there always is someone. And even if you can't find that person straight away, um, even things like Lifeline or um, Kids Helpline, there are so many services that you can access nowadays. um, But it is definitely about humbling yourself and saying, yes, I definitely need some support. And for parents as well uh, to... I mean I have a 19 or 20 year old son now and for me it's just been about opening up the conversation continually throughout his life letting him know that even if things look bad that I'm always here for him that it doesn't matter what he's done that I will continue to love him and that um yeah it doesn't matter how far he goes that I will always be here to support him so I think yeah opening up conversations about drugs and alcohol because if as parents, we don't inform our children in the right choices, then they're going to find that out from their peers, from people at school and from people that perhaps don't have the right information.
3: Mm. Wow, that's, that's powerful. Um, and so for yeah. you as, as the young person, it was that point of being willing to, like you said, say, uh, you're right. Um, no doubt people had tried to tell you before that mm. point and you weren't ready for, for listening, to listen.
1: Yeah, to be honest, I think uh, there was no one really in my life that I allowed at that time to speak into me in a positive way. I was just so busy in the partying scene and nightclubbing and um, hanging out with people that were doing the same types of things that I was, that I hadn't allowed anyone into my life to say, hey, Jade, have have you thought of something else? Have you thought of a different way? And I think... um, After I came back to Adelaide and had my son and started volunteering with the Salvos, it was definitely the direction that I wanted to continue on Mm -hmm. and that's why I became a youth worker.
2: This is Life First with Matt and Sarah. We're chatting with Jade and we'll be back straight after this.
0: If you like what you're hearing, please write a review of this podcast on your podcasting app. Or you can share this on social media.
2: 13 11 14 is the number to reach out to Lifeline 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If anything we're talking about on today's show is raising any type of issues for you and you just want to have someone to talk to this is life first i am sarah
3: and i'm matt and uh we are chatting to jade today jade you shared uh, early part of your stories and big challenges you went through mm-hmm. but uh you just alluded to the fact that you went from there and got into youth work so tell us yeah
1: about oh it was just amazing um that i was volunteering for the salvation army Um, at the local neighbourhood centre working with youth. And then from there I supported the um, Salvos in running a local disco and uh, it was in partnership with a youth centre called Renella Enterprise and Youth Centre and they kind of said to me, we really liked what you did, do you want to come and hang out with us and uh, learn some things about youth work? And I did and I worked for Mission Australia Australia Rinella Enterprise and Youth Centre and the Southern Youth Exchange, and also a site down at Glenelg for ten years mm. as a youth worker, yeah. and um, did a little bit of study on the way. But I was um, had some amazing mentors. I worked in one of the programs that I worked in was a youth um, enterprise, uh, so. Um, my mentor helped me create a fashion label, and um, then we recycled clothing. And then other young um, entrepreneurs could also host um, their clothing and items at um, the youth centre and sell them. And we had big yeah. fashion parades, mm-hmm. and it was amazing time. And then from there, I moved down to the Glenelg site and ran a alternate education programme for. Um, young people that continued to be suspended and or expelled from school. And so instead of doing nothing, they would come and do the program that I was managing and absolutely loved that. Mm. And um, it kind of went full circle because that program was actually run in a Salvation Army building at Marion. And uh, I connected with some of the staff there and the especially the youth pastor And uh, as I was a Christian myself, and so after the students had left, we would get together and pray and read the Bible. And then some of the students said, oh, what are you guys doing? And um, kind of wanted to join in, which was amazing um, as a Christian person that young people would want to ask questions and uh, read the Bible for themselves. but then I was actually told that that wasn't my role with these young people, that I needed to refer them on back to their school chaplains. And uh, I did that. And But it was really on my heart that um, these young people were wanting to explore and um, see what Christianity was all about. So my chaplain at the time from Mission Australia had a conversation with me and said, Jade, have you ever thought about being a school chaplain? Mm-hmm. And that's where the next story begins. Mm. Um, I was very blessed to be able to uh, go into a position at a Chunga primary school. Yes, yes. If you go back the second, the second interview we did.
2: Which was myself. I talk about Jade. Yes, I do. I do. I talk about you you all the time.
3: Hero status, Jade. Pretty
2: much. much. Not doing any pressure on you or anything. (laughs) So tell us, how did you get to be at Chunga and meet this amazing person? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I was actually really blessed and worked at Chunga for over eight years Mm. as the pastoral support worker, and Sarah was one of the students, but also came back um, with her beautiful mum and volunteered so much uh, with myself, but also at the school. And it was just an amazing time. I loved working in the kindy and um, meeting families and um, the students that were just starting their schooling journey, formal school schooling education journey and then um, was able to stay for a whole rotation. So someone that was in kindy finished in year seven and I was there for that whole journey and it wow. was just absolutely amazing. I loved it to bits mm-hmm. and uh, still really have a heart for Achanga Primary School and still catch up with um, a few of the teachers. And in fact, um, after I left Achanga, I started to study to be a pastor. And uh, that journey took a while. <laughs> I um, still have a couple of subjects to go before I can sit bef- uh, before the board to get credentialed. But in the meantime, I think there was other plans, and that's where Flint Community Care came in. Okay. Yeah.
3: Now, before we go to to that story, uh, just going back from where you you left our first segment, um, you were you coming out of detox what what was it that motivated you from from there to then start volunteering and and getting involved with young people what what happened in that gap
1: i think for me um even looking back uh to my childhood i was always the one that would gather all the neighborhood friends um together and i remember um on the weekends um i would go around to all the neighborhood kids and say if you give me 50 cents." you can come over and I'll run up to the shop and buy lollies. And then they would and uh, they would all come (laughs) over, we'd play games, I'd hand out lollies. So always really had a heart for um, bringing people together and um, having fun and, um, yeah, just organising things almost uh, in a leadership kind of style. Mm. So, yeah, I've been able to really reflect that that was kind of, my childhood growing up, always gathering people together and going for a common goal. And um, yeah, I think the youth work was me wanting to give back to um, organisations that had supported me. Mm. So that's why I started first volunteering with the Salvos at the local drop-in centre at the neighbourhood centre and we would um, open up the neighbourhood centre for the youth to come in and play pool and hang out and then we'd also jump in cars and uh, drive around full Park and hand out chips and coke and get to know young people and give them information and resources if they needed it as well. So, yeah, it was almost for me a natural progression um, in mm-hmm. giving back and, um, yeah, I think that's it, how it started. It sounds very natural. It's like you were just
2: made to be in that role from such a young age, a a role of caring for other people. And we both certainly know that you've continued to do that throughout your life. I'm really interested, you kind of skimmed over it a bit, interested in finding out how did you cope emotionally and physically with a family breakdown?
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think, again, it was one of those things that it was just happening to me and that I really didn't know anything different, really, that um, a lot of my friends at school had the similar situations happening around the same time and it just seemed normal. I hadn't, I really didn't have many friends that had parents that were together, um, which is a terrible thing to uh go through um that it was just normalized that parents around my friendship group were, were getting divorced and so I didn't really know anything different. I do now and um yeah I can really see um as a single mum now to Jacob who's nearly 21 oh my goodness <laughs> um that having a family unit, a mother and a father um and people around to care for him and to support me in my role is yeah you couldn't want anything else for your family really Mm. Mm. when we come back yeah i want to explore a little
2: bit more about now that you are older and looking at that process as well so this is life first with matt and sarah we'll be back straight after this
0: hey did you know this show is available in video too you can find it at
3: rawcut.com.au
2: This is Life Burst. I'm Sarah.
3: And I'm Matt. Uh, we've been chatting to Jade about uh, a number of aspects of your life, challenges and things you got through. Uh, during those years where you're a chaplain, uh, you also had some some challenges of your own uh, mm. that continued. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things about being a carer or a nurturer is that uh, you need to really practice self-care. And I don't think I was doing that well. And... Um, During my time at Achanga, I definitely showed some signs um, and actually had some mental health challenges. Mm. Um, I spent some significant time in um, some mental health facilities um, around South Australia and uh, was diagnosed with Schizoaffective Disorder.
3: Right, wow. And did that, uh, how was it for you to come to terms with with that as a, as a person, as someone that people were looking up to. How did you work through that?
1: Mm. Yeah, it was really difficult because I'd always been in that nurturing, caring role for others. Mm-hmm. And now I had to accept help and um, really explore the fact that uh, my brain chemicals weren't working properly, that um, I had to step away from being um, a pastoral support worker for some time while I was in hospital and recovering. And uh, yeah, it was pretty big. It was pretty big to go through. It was a scary experience as well. Um, I had a lot of intrusive thoughts. I had um, some suicidal um, thoughts as well, which were really scary. Um, after being, um, no definitely through my past um having the addictions and Mm. then getting better to find myself having mental health challenges so Mm. yeah it was a really big um and it took a very long process to come to terms with what was happening how did you deal with those intrusive thoughts and the fact that
2: you wanted to die like how did you deal with that
1: yeah well I didn't is the the answer to in the beginning and Mm -hmm. that's why I was um actually placed in a mental health facility um at Woodley House at Modbury and I was there for um I think around three or four weeks which is a long time to be in a hospital um, during that time, I was had access to a really amazing psychologist and um, also worked with psychiatrists to get on the right types of medication. I had, again, my beautiful mum and my whole family really supporting me and um, also looking after my son Jacob because I was a single mum, mm-hmm. which was just beautiful, again, that they... Um, had, had to go through that whole thing with, um, you know, my addiction and my past and support me through that. And now I was going through some mental health challenges um, and they were there again to support me, which I'm so grateful for because I know not everybody has that support and it uh, was definitely a big catalyst for me um, starting my journey of recovery um, through my mental health challenges. Mm. So, so what's what would... What- Woodley, is that what you said? Woodley, Woodley House.
2: Like, talk us through what it looks like. What's, what, what was life like every day for you? Daily routines and tasks and things like that. How was that?
1: Well, I remember um, at the time I first um, was taken to the Royal Adelaide Hospital, the <laughs> old one, <laughs> um, and from there um, I was in um, a ward for people with mental health problems, um, but it was short stay. And from then they said, and I felt quite comfortable there. It looked just like a hospital um, ward. So there was beds, um, nothing much else except for those draw screens. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just basically sit there and do nothing, which I would love to change <laughs> the, you know, to have mental health issues um, being given medication that made you feel quite drowsy, sleepy, and, um, very calm, but have nothing to do. Um, so, um, at the time my boyfriend, he would come in and we would just chat and, but that was basically all that there was to do until there was a more permanent, um, spot for me at Woodley House, um, Modbury was very far away from where I was living up um, in the Adelaide Hills. So that was, but that was the first spot that was available. So I remember being transferred in um, an ambulance to Woodley House and I was petrified. I knew that I was really unwell. I knew that the things that were going inside my brain weren't, um, weren't great. I didn't know how to control it. Um, But I was petrified when I rocked up there. I'd never been to anywhere like that before. And I must say that um, the staff at Woodley House were amazing. They made me feel really comfortable. Um, So when I was um, dropped off there with the ambulance, they came to greet me. I walked in, um, there was a long hallway. And then to the left, uh, there was what they called like a common area. So um, that's where you'd have your meals. And then there was a a little table as well to do craft and activities on. And then there was a lounge room. Um, So and then upstairs, um, there was the bedrooms. So um, you had your individual bedrooms and a shared communal bathroom area. Um, so that night I was placed in a room, um, and you could go out to the bathrooms, but the whole area was locked down. So, um, it was a surreal experience to be honest. Mm. And then the next morning, the staff woke me up and took me downstairs. Um, that area then was locked. So you couldn't go back up to get your personal belongings or, um, just spend some quiet time by yourself. And in the morning, um, we would have breakfast and then have like a group time. Um, And then um, they would have craft activities and um, you could go on walks if you're allowed to. And then see all the doctors and nurses and psychologists and psychiatrists. And um, yeah, it was a very long process of getting well enough in my thinking that I was safe and that everybody else was safe and that I could function really um on this kind of new lifestyle of being a heavily medicated and then uh, when I was came back home after a month um then I still had some time off from work but then slowly eased back into being a pastoral support worker with a mental health condition which yeah it's pretty big
3: yeah so i uh, if you're happy to share what what does the road to recovery look like for you so you came out of the facility but you talk about uh, yeah going back to work with uh, recognizing the, the the challenges you had. Um, yeah, w- what does it look like for you leading out of that?
1: Yeah, so I was really blessed that I was able to job share with mm. a beautiful lady called Lisa, um, and yeah, so we shared the role for a while, um, which was just beautiful. She was such a well, she is such an amazing person and just supported me how I needed to be supported at that time. Um, I had wonderful um, mentors from the church um, that were checking in with me at least once a week. I was seeing a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And then I had my beautiful family as well. So um, it kind of looked gentle and slow. And uh, also um, the principal at the time of um, being at work was just amazing and just really welcomed me back but um allowed me to do it in the capacity that i could mm. yeah
3: wow uh, for those who are perhaps uh, looking to support someone who's, who's going through some mental health uh, challenges uh, whatever they may be would you give it, what advice would you give to them um, people are well-meaning but don't necessarily know how to respond is there anything you'd say to those from your experience
1: yeah, I think the thing to know about mental health is that every person um, is different. Mm-hmm. Every person is unique. They um, exhibit behaviours and challenges uh, uniquely. Um, just because you have one diagnosis doesn't mean that you will act or behave in a certain way. It affects everybody completely different. And so if you're a loved one or a close friend of somebody, you already know that person, but um, And it's just about showing up all the time that you're there when they're sad, you're there when they're happy, that you are there when they need to talk, you're there when they need to cry. And uh, it's just about showing up really, Um, not... And I think because everybody's individual and um, we love, you know, we love our family, we love our friends and we want them to get better. I think there's Mm. always um, that, urge to make them better or to feel better. But um, I know there's like this huge saying going around at the moment, which is, it's okay not to be okay. And I believe that to a little bit, which is, is a, my take on it is it's okay to be okay, not to be okay for a while. And uh, it's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to have a bad moment. But when those moments and those days turn into weeks and months, then um, my advice for parents and for loved ones is to just bring information and let that person sit with that information. And um, if they're in control of their own journey, then they're um, better equipped to do when you're not around. But then if people are in crisis, don't leave it. Don't leave it for them to... Um, navigate themselves there's definitely a fine line between someone being in crisis and not being able to cope and you know saying those things that we all know that uh, means that people are really um, in danger Um, get help don't think that your family can deal with it on their own Um, seek professional help um uh, in the Adelaide Hills, for instance, uh, we have the Adelaide Hills Mental Health Team, we have Headspace, we have CAMS, and I think one of the greatest things that we have in our community is also our GPs. Um, they are very well equipped to deal with situations like this, so mm. yeah, that would be my advice.
3: That's that's really helpful. Thank you, Jade. Mm. Uh, this is LifeBurst, so we're chatting to Jade, and when we come back, we'll hear more of her story. In Australia, juvenile arthritis
0: affects one in 1,000 children. It's a silent yet common condition. Kids Arthritis is here to help support these children and their families. To help them, go to kidsarthritis.org. This has been a raw cut community service announcement.
2: Life Lifebus, we're chatting with Jade. Jade,
1: you've been on a recent road trip that's a little bit special. It is. I was um, very blessed that, um, unfortunately, one of my uncles, my Aboriginal uncles, passed away. And uh, we were so blessed that um, he left us um, some inheritance. And because he loved travelling, um, I spoke to my son Jacob and I said, let's honour Uncle. Um, let's travel and so uh, we found a like a big van a Winnebago over in Perth and Jacob and I jumped in a plane and uh, flew over there and met our new vehicle Um, and then we it was just the two of us I'd Mm -hmm. driven such a big vehicle before <laughs> what was that like oh uh, it like? was crazy <laughs> um so basically the lovely person that sold us the van gave us a quick run through and took a photo of the gear stick because it's completely different to a car and so the first time i drove it down the road i would say to check what gear am i in and he'd look at the photo and then he'd go oh you're in third and you have to go this way to get to fourth and um, yeah we drove like that until we got (laughs) to the petrol station. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, I don't even know where the (laughs) petrol (laughs) goes or what kind of petrol it is. And so that was an adventure. And then we took about three and a half weeks to get back to Adelaide where we picked up our beautiful fur baby, Alice. She's um, a Kelpie cross, Um, chucked her in the van with us. And then we drove um, mainly off-grid camping um, all the way up to Darwin and back, and that took about 10 months. So wow. it was just a beautiful adventure. Jacob um, was on his gap year um, from leaving high school and uh, it was just such a beautiful family time and um, was really able to learn about some other Aboriginal cultures on the way um, and yeah, just spend time together as a family, which was really important. Um, for me and I think also for Jacob um, being that he was definitely changing into that time of life where um, he was getting a little bit more independent Mm -hmm. so it was nice to spend that time together Yeah.
3: so that was 2019 and uh, you came back and did you have some sense of what you were going to do when you got back from that road trip
1: well, we had come back in December. um, I had just also been overseas to Papua New Guinea, teaching wow. at a Bible school, wow. came back, and we thought, well, we'll just stay in South Australia for December for Christmas to spend time with our family. And then I'm sorry, you went overseas to I know where the story is going uh, you went overseas and taught at a Bible school. Yes, I did. That is fascinating. Yeah. Because
2: they don't speak English. Well,
1: I'm presuming. Um, well, I went to Papua New Guinea, yeah, so it's okay. kind of a broken English. Okay, um, okay. But they could definitely um, understand what I was saying. Mm-hmm. Some of it was translated, which was uh, new for me to speak and then have a translator. But um, yeah, I um, spent uh, two just over two weeks there. Um, and then came back for Christmas. So. Wow, Okay, so yeah. you came
3: back ready to have a relaxed, uh, put your feet up, enjoy Christmas with family. But something happened uh, in December in the Adelaide Hills uh, and that changed a lot of your life since.
1: Yeah, it definitely did. So um, uh, December... 2019 the Cuddly Creek bushfire started. Um, At that time I was training to be a pastor and we decided to open um, our church up for the community being that it was a a catastrophic day and extremely hot and we had air conditioning and we were serving teas and coffees. And I think from memory there was about 25 people, 30 people there. And uh, we had been watching the news reports and listening to the radio and Um, It was, um, we were told that Nan needed to get to a safer place. So we took everybody that was at the Nan church up to a church in Murray Bridge and I had my dog and my son with me and that just shook me to the core. It um, really impacted me and I thought, goodness Mila, I have to do something here.
2: Just to clarify, was the church open because it was a hot day and you were encouraging people to come in? Or was the church open
1: because there was a bushfire and you were allowing people to come in? Um, we opened up uh, because we had air conditioning and it was a catastrophic day. Okay, okay. wanted cool. uh, to open it up to make sure that, you know, people were safe and cool and, um, yeah, had somewhere to go if they needed it. So there was no, the bushfire hadn't started by this time or it had Yeah. It, um, okay, just wanted to... Yeah, it was going during that day. Okay.
2: Yeah. I just want to get the timeline right. That was cool. <laughs> cool, cool. So you Murray Bridge and yeah, it to your
1: cause with the fire. Definitely. And then um, the next day I rang Dan Cregan, our local MP, and I said, Dan, I'm here to help. What can I do? And uh, he said, "The your local CFS at NAN, they don't have anyone supporting them with um, food and drinks. Um, can you get down there and organise something. And I, to be honest, I'd been to um, volunteer at Black Saturday in King Lake uh, for about three weeks with my church back then. So I kind of knew a little bit, but definitely not what I was about to get into. And um, I sat on the bench um, in McMurphy Park, and I've got a photo of that bench because I sat there and I said something that I didn't realise the impact was, which was God, I'm here, use me, I'm available, um, whatever you need from me, I'll do. And uh, then all of a sudden we had trestle tables and food and marquees and so many beautiful community members volunteering their time and we were making up packs of food and giving them to the CFS and uh, after about two days we noticed that people from the community that were deeply fire affected were coming into Nan with literally just the clothes on their back and um, so we moved our operations into the church that I was attending and uh, we opened up a store inside the church so then people could come in um, sit with a trained counsellor and debrief but also work out what their immediate needs was. Was it clothing? Was it food? Was it accommodation? Was it food for their livestock? And uh, then the team of amazing volunteers from the community um, would source those immediate needs. So, yeah, it was pretty crazy back then. Mm -hmm. How did you get all of that food and how did you get all
2: those things that they needed so quickly?
1: Um, A lot of phone calls, but a lot of social media, like sometimes we think that social media is bad, but in this instance, uh, we really used it to our advantage and had some amazing volunteers that were really uh, great at social media. And uh, so the counsellors would pass on the information to myself and then my team would decide what the immediate um, things were that we could source and then would give it to the social media team and they would just send out the information asking for support. So, um, yeah, that's how it kind of worked in those uh, yeah, in, in the beginning. So you went from this holiday
2: vibe of like mm. no stress to suddenly this boom, this high stressful situation and considering what's happened in your
1: past, how did you deal with that? I think um, I. it's amazing how things work out and I always think there's no coincidences in life. I think that um, all of my story have kind of Um, brought me to this point and given me all the skills and well not all of them I'm still learning but (laughs) a lot of the skills and a lot of the knowledge that I needed to do this role Um, and definitely because I had that mental health challenges I definitely learned more self-care and um, how to notice my triggers but also to care for myself um which was amazing that I could use some of my past that was so horrific and very challenging to my benefit in this role. So, yeah.
3: Fantastic.
2: This is Life Pass Chatting with Jade, Life Purse with Matt and Sarah, and we'll be back straight after this.
0: If you think more people should listen to this, share this podcast on social media.
3: On Life Bursts with Sarah and Matt, we are chatting to Jade, and Jade is telling us the story of supporting those who were fire affected in the uh, the Cuddly Creek fires back at the end of 2019. Uh, But this wasn't a short-term fix. This wasn't a short-term problem. Uh, You found yourself... Um, supporting these people for a far longer time than that. How did it unfold from those early days in NAN?
1: Yeah, so we were inside the church, supporting a lot of the fire-affected community. And um, as the need kind of slowed down uh, with the store, what we dubbed the store, um, we decided to close that section of um, what was NAN fire support. Um, But then COVID hit Mm. and uh, we moved to the local footy club rooms and uh, they were so gracious and allowed us to use that space. Um, and then we had continued had to have some amazing volunteers and uh, we did up food packages and delivered them out to people that were affected by COVID. And at that time we, uh, I had actually had a Facebook memory pop up just last week to say, um, did you remember the time when? Um, and it was talking, our Facebook memory was talking about that we did 330 food packages that week. Wow. um Most of them we delivered um, during that time of COVID. Uh, it was a huge operation and my, the volunteers that support f- um, what is now Flint Community Care have continued. Um, we've had a few moves since the cricket club, uh, but now we're located at the Brakunga Hall which is just amazing because that's definitely part of the community that we first started supporting mm-hmm. and just to be back in the community and supporting those families still. Um, so a lot of families unfortunately were affected by the COVID, by COVID and the fires so we're continually um, supporting those families and uh, the communities um, but not just Brakunga now so we're supporting um, a lot of the Adelaide Hills region um, with free food packages weekly. Wow. Yeah.
3: So you've, as you've been, uh, it started with the needs around the fire, but as you've got involved in the community, you've found that there are a number of people who are uh, seeking support in need of just even a simple food package is a, is a real blessing to them. Uh, what are you discovering as you get involved in the community?
1: Um, definitely discovering that um, food is one way that people would like support at the moment. But uh, just as much as the food, um, people are really um, generally um, happy to receive a conversation. So just people checking in on them once a week and having conversation to see how they're going. Um, We have the Hall, the Rakunga Hall, open um, on a Friday afternoon and we have a lot of families coming in now to collect their food parcels and we have a beautiful kids' area and we have coffee and cake and lunch all for free. And uh, it's just about now supporting the community um, in being a community, giving them an avenue where they can uh, come together and support each other, which is just very vital in recovery. Um, and yeah, just having a lovely time. Um, we, all the volunteers get out of it. I think as just as much as the community, um, we call ourselves the Flint community care family now Mm. because, um, we embrace all the volunteers and uh, the community that we're supporting. And it's, um, a beautiful thing, but um, I, and I get quite emotional talking about it because I have poured in so much mm-hmm. of my heart and mm. soul into it. Um, and the community response is massive and it's growing. Um, since the stop of some of the government support, financial support um, through COVID, we've had over a 50% increase in people asking us to support them with um, food and um So it's a growing need in our community, Mm. definitely. Now, those who are watching this online or television, they'll be able to see your shirt.
2: But explain to those people who are not watching us, what do you have
1: on your shirt that you're wearing today? So I'm wearing a black T-shirt and it has our Love Heart logo um, on it, um, a part of the Flint Community Care logo. And this was designed by a beautiful lady called Bron and uh, so it's the love heart and on the side um, is some waves and um, that's um, without copying but being very similar to the sign for fire for Aboriginal people so she wanted to um, show uh, everything that we're about the heart of what we are which is definitely um, acknowledging and embracing Aboriginal culture but also are loving and supporting our community. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people ask us why we're called Flint um, Community Care and the story is that um, the Paramount people, uh, Nation that uh, we work on, um, they trade f- uh, fire uh, kits or flint kits mm-hmm. with neighbouring nations and uh, we started because of the fire um But in Aboriginal culture, fire's not actually about devastation, but it is about bringing community together and celebrating and sharing resource and food and um, listening and learning. And that's definitely the heart of Blink Community Care. And that's why we have the love heart as well.
3: Beautiful and a great connection back to your heritage as well, um, as you shared in the beginning, um, as a a local Indigenous person.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm so blessed because... Um, just recently I've been able to go into a few local schools and talk about my Aboriginal culture and share some of that uh, with students but also um, work with some amazing Aboriginal leaders um, in the Mount Barker district area um, and we're organising NAIDOC week and I'm also very blessed because I won a scholarship to study um, christian aboriginal leadership so um through australia's together and which means that i get to learn more about leadership and culture and my christianity my three passions all rolled into one so yeah really blessed to have that that's amazing you got some awesome things ahead of you by the sounds of Mm. it now in the final
2: two minutes of our show if you had one piece of advice to share with those who are listening to us right
1: now what would that be Definitely in my role as um, working in Flint Community Care, I've definitely learned that uh, ask people how they want to be supported. Don't. Um, that's one of the things that we say continually at Flint mm-hmm. is that mm. we support people how they want to be supported. When there's a big crisis or something going on, there's always that rush and wave of beautiful people with kind hearts mm. willing to support but not knowing what to support, and then there's always that wave um, of huge gathering of momentum um, and then it kind of peters out and we've, we've found that time and time again through Flint. Um, but it's definitely my piece of advice was, would be to sit with people, listen and support them in the way that they want to be supported
3: fantastic excellent i love that advice and uh really thank you for thank you. for sharing your story um so much challenge that you've come through and mm. so much uh, such a heart to to help others in all that you do so thank you jay mm. for sharing that and uh, encouraging us and our listeners today
2: this has been life first you can catch up with us wherever you get your podcasts from and on facebook and youtube as well i'm sarah
3: and i'm matt thank you for joining us once again have a great week Life bursts is hosted by Matthew Karat
0: and Sarah Freeman, with production by Rhys Jarrett and Kay Hoshraw Azadegan, with additional assistance by Brett Freeman. For more episodes of Life bursts, go to rawcut.com.au. This is a Raw Cut production.